Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas, and this last week, the BBC highlighted the story of Sean Penner, a former soldier of the British Army who joined the Ukrainian Armed Forces as a contracted fighter in 2018 and then fought during the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. During the siege of Mariupol, he was captured and sentenced to death in a show trial but then was freed in September of last year in a prisoner exchange. In December 2022, he was awarded the State Order of Courage Third Degree in a decree by President Zelensky for selfless acts in the defence and sovereignty of Ukraine. So, speaking earlier this week on BBC's breakfast programme, Sean described his experience of torture at the hands of his captors. He was beaten, electrocuted and stabbed. And prior to his capture, held up in that siege, he made what he thought was his final phone call to his wife. She screamed at him and told him to live, to fight, to survive. Sean said it was gallows humour and then a strong sense of community and togetherness with his fellow soldiers and then fellow inmates that enabled him to survive. I just don't know what I would have done without them, he said. Someone once remarked, what is life if we have not life together? We were made, created by God for community. But the ravages of COVID have displaced many people, wrenched them from the places of belonging in their lives. Friendships have been eroded or shattered. Marriages have been dissolved. And many Christian believers are dislocated from local church engagement. Many of us watch or listen online, and that's a fabulous gift, but we can tend to become spectators rather than participants. So tonight, let's simply take some time to celebrate the power, the value of friendships, community and church, because let me say it again, togetherness is what we were made for. Like a pesky mosquito flying an endless sortie around my head, a nagging thought that just wouldn't be swatted buzzed around my brain during the Sunday morning service. I know that it's so important for us as Christians to be together, but that day I looked around the congregation that I was with and I wondered why were so many of those people so downright odd? Now, this approach is unusual for me because most of the time I scan the backs of the heads of my fellow worshippers and I feel rather inferior. They, I reason, are surely far more godly than I. While I struggle to read a single proverb, they have surely imbibed great chunks of the book of Numbers and memorised them to boot. While I am fog-bound in the Chicago airport of spirituality and peer hopefully and occasionally hopelessly through the mire, they, I think, have a digital widescreen super-sharp billion-pixel vision of Jesus and a super-speed download capacity for prayer. But on that morning, I wondered, what a strange lot my fellow Christians are. There's that chap over there who wears sandals and, worse still, socks with them year-round, even through the snowier months. 
that enthusiastic brother at the front who insists on dancing in the worship, even though it is to the unmeaty sound of an acoustic guitar, and even through slow songs like He Is Lord. Is he keen or just not well? That lady with a hat that is in fact a straw fruit bowl stuck on her head, wearing it as she does in her belief that Jesus wants her to do that and that the sun should be eclipsed anyway, she's very much here, but is she all there? It's an uncharitable notion and I feel waves of guilt as I confess it, but why are so many of God's crowd just so weird? It got worse, I wondered. Is church just a stained glass holding pen for a whole herd of the weakest links? Are we theologizing what is really just a social need for losers to hang together? Would they still come if we sang songs of worship to goldfish? Now, before you write in to complain, let me say that I have repented of my uncharitable musings. I still am nervous when I meet Christians who were blatantly committed to being boring souls before they met Jesus, and in all the years that they've been around him, the most exciting personality in the universe, they've maintained that steadfast commitment to dullness. But I have realized that I was actually very wrong in my judgment. First of all, the kingdom of God is for losers. Never mind the superficial service evidences like so-called fashion or style or what it means to be a sad type. We are, all of us, me, you, invited to join God's party on the basis of our admitting that we didn't make the grade, not that we breasted the tape with pride. Thank God his banquet is not a garden party for the successful and the smooth. The broken down, the need to get out more, came in last types or offered a seat of honour at the king's table. Far from being an ascot race's enclosure for the loaded, fashionably beautiful top dogs, the kingdom offers a free pass paid for with blood for those who would normally be left shuffling around outside or invited in only in order to use a broom to sweep up the mess that the winners made. And then, who can quantify what is a loser anyway? Church is not an arena of the cool types who strive to get cooler in Jesus' name. The superficial badges of appearance and competence that we wear must be left at the door. Those who are called nerds out in the icy world are welcome, but once inside around the Father's warm hearth, the word nerd is banned. All are invited here, whether you look like me or if you are mistaken for Richard Gere. In this kingdom of underachievers, only the style police are banned, and even they can come in if they'll just put down their truncheons. The lonely, those who bumble nervously and incoherently at parties and don't often get invited again because of it, they are at home here. They belong in this place of powerful togetherness. I can fit right in, and not because I've just decided to wear all-season sandals. It's because of the knowledge that we're all messed up, all have sinned, and the call to all of us is to come into Dad's house where the lamp of welcome still burns in an upper window. Thank God, he is the champion who chooses the awkward, gangly limb players for his soccer team and gives them equal honour to the Beckhams. 
He is the swashbuckling romantic who kisses the plain Janes, so-called, and insists on utilising ordinary people for his purposes and blessing them in the process. One reason for his heart for the ordinary is simple. Ultimately, we all are. Ordinary, that is, but much loved. And we also need to take another look at the chap with the socks and the sandals combo, and we'll catch a glint of gold because he's fought a year-long bout with cancer and lost his wife a decade ago. He's trudged his way through a lot of heartache and pain, but he's still worshipping from the top of his head to the soles of his socks and sandaled feet. He looks like a real winner to me. As we're thinking about the power of togetherness, here's a question. What part can you and I play in creating such a culture? I learned a great lesson about that in a day of stark contrasts in which I witnessed crassness and grace and all in the same hour. Travelling by train to Nottingham, I'd found myself shunted into an emotional siding of despair. Disgust isn't a word that I often employ. It really sounds rather too shrill. But disgusted I was as I endured the conversations of five chaps who sat across from me on the juddering train. Adolescents disguised as middle-aged men, these 40-somethings on an outing, each one of them clutching a can of beer in hand, loudly filled the carriage with their putrid chatter. And it wasn't just the endless bad language that jarred. They luringly boasted of their probably imaginary exploits with women, whom they obviously viewed as objects to be used rather than people to be cherished. Like a bunch of college kids out on the razzle, they described in dank and dark detail their boozy nights and vomit-soaked awakenings. I've said enough about their conversation. To report any more would stain your mind and likely turn your stomach, as it did mine. I kept glancing over at them, offering a quizzical look that might perhaps nudge them into embarrassed silence, but it was in vain. I nervously decided to stop my glaring, because the more they drank, the louder they became, and I wondered if they might add violence to their collection of dubious accomplishments, violence towards me in particular, if they decided to wipe the shocked glare from my face. Other passengers wrinkled their noses in disdain and hunched lower behind newspapers in an attempt to shield themselves from such ugly talk. I admit it, I was seething. It's been said that we're living in a culture where children are being forced to grow up faster and where people are maturing more slowly. Certainly, these beer-belly-sporting overgrown teenagers, and that's an insult to teenagers, they were a testimony that this is true. All seemed gloomy as they sought to shock each other with their woeful tales. Arriving at Nottingham at last, I lugged a heavy case and a heavier heart out of the train, overwhelmed by the fear that Britain is becoming a crass, fetid culture. Coarseness is too commonplace. Men and women behaving badly comes as no surprise. It's just the way things are. We lament the condition of our culture, but we feel powerless to do anything to help repair it. However, we're quite wrong to wring our hands in despair and feel we can't change anything because just a few minutes later, unexpectedly, the sun came out. With 14 miles to go to get to my hotel, I decided to take the bus. 
and it was then that hope dawned once more. The bus was a few minutes ahead of schedule, so I was able to ask a few questions of the driver about the route as he waited for his departure time. He smilingly told me everything I needed to know, and then a young man, standing in the queue, joined the conversation helpfully. As the bus journey began, I watched the startling warm drama unfold. At every bus stop, and during the hour journey, there were many bus stops, the driver turned to smile at and thank each departing passenger. They, in turn, nodded and verbalised their thanks. One or two more ominous-looking types who were snuggled menacingly in hoodies shattered my prejudice as they spoke out their thanks to him, loud and clear. In a cold, anonymous world, this man was creating a culture of beauty and togetherness on his slow-moving bus as he took the time to notice and acknowledge each passenger as his guest. As for that lad who'd been so kind in the queue, he was going up and down the bus, picking up litter and ensuring that that vehicle stayed pristine. Without being asked, he hastily vacated his seat for a lady who boarded, offering it with a smile. And then, discovering that I was a newcomer to the area, he gave me a little guided tour as the bus meandered around the town. To be honest, he pointed out sights that were not really that epic, but I was so grateful for his thoughtfulness. Now, over there, that's Lloyd's Bank. And that's the fire station, the Chinese takeaway. And now we're passing the post office. When we finally reached the stop nearest my hotel, our kindly tour guide helped me from the bus with my gigantic case. Living as I do in America, I reached for some cash to give him a tip, but it was too late. With a smile and a wave, the bus was gone, and so was the sense of despair that had seeped into my soul back there on the train. Our words, our attitudes, and our small acts of grace can create a culture around us, a culture of togetherness. When we gossip, we give permission for gossip, but a smile might well beget a smile. Crassness is catching, but thankfully, grace is catching too. The village. I won't name it in case you live there and you put a contract on my life as a result of listening to this. It's enough to say that the village is somewhere in Dorset. It's picture postcard High Street, flanked with Victorian street lamps and beautiful Purbeck stone cottages, make it the stuff of chocolate box lids. We were there for a month in a rented cottage, a cosy 300-year-old nest where we would celebrate Christmas and take some time out. Bliss, perhaps. Our first step out was to the pub, a helpful 20 yards from our cottage. Reassuringly old, it looked loaded with character and charm. But there was something of an icebox within. I pushed on the great ironclad door, my heart tinged with the vague, irrational anxiety that I normally feel when I enter somewhere unfamiliar. But my angst was justified. Suddenly, I felt the trauma of not belonging, not being part of the together event that was going on within. The bar area was small, one of a series of very tiny rooms and locals were lining the walls, filling every seat, chattering happily back and forth, the ping pong of life in a small village. Everyone seemed to know everyone. We, of course, knew no one. 
We sauntered hopefully in, all smiles and nods of greeting, and immediately everything went very quiet. The happy conversational buzz silenced. The chilly quiet was deafening. Suddenly, the bar area where we stood, blocking their view of each other and effectively preventing any further chat until we just got out of the way, turned into a stage with us, the unwelcome fools, strangers, stranded upon that stage. I stammered my order, conscious as I was of my hushed audience, their eyes boring holes in my back. A stammered attempt at a warm comment to the lady behind the bar was rejected with a sniff, so we fled with our drinks to the stark, empty little room next door. Tourists were apparently on the same level in the food chain as rodents. We sipped our drinks and organised an impromptu escape committee. We are mad idiots. Thus, undeterred, we ventured back to that desolate pub the next night, Frosty, the person behind the bar, refused to give the barest tint of recognition that she'd ever clapped eyes on us before. Our good evening was greeted with a yes. Never mind the pleasantries, just get on with your order. One of us, in a rash, suicidal gesture, decided to offer a compliment to her. This is a very nice pub, he chortled. She looked up slowly from her pouring, eyes narrowed and volleyed back our warm comment like an unwanted hand grenade. Well, we're not going to change it. Change it? Who implied that any amendments or revisions were needed? This was a nice pub. I said N-I-C-E, nice. Hello? Utterly defeated, we retreated again to the drafty little room of the night before. All right, so let's be charitable. Perhaps these folks get utterly fed up with camera-toting, noisy tourists messing up their summers and see their winter as a needed breather, a holiday from the holidaymakers. So we decided to visit the church for their midnight Christmas service. We entered the glorious old building, all dressed up as it was, in the beautiful candlelit bunting of the season, warm and welcoming. Heads craned around as we accepted our hymn books, walking exhibit A's now. We needed to sit down somewhere, anywhere, quickly. Three seats were close by, and they were vacant, and our bottoms were just about to fill them when a smartly dressed man seated in the row behind the empty seats leaned forward, waving his hands, a look of horror in his eyes. Then I realised with shame that we were taking seats reserved for the stewards who would collect the offering. I muttered a flustered apology to the flapping seat sentry and herded the three of us off to some safer wooden chairs at the side of the nave. Flushed with shame, I tried to settle my skipping heart down and just focus on worship. Before long, I felt glad that we'd braved the seat debacle. The service itself was rich and the liturgy heartfelt. These people certainly sang their hearts out. All was going swimmingly until the sermon. The minister came quite close to actually recognising that he was talking to real-life human beings rather than delivering a scripted homily to the ancient rafters, but not close enough. I shifted uncomfortably in my seat, trying to be uncritical but frustrated by the millions of miles that there seemed to be between priest and people, angry at the fact that this could mean a perception that there were light years between them and God. On the way out, we shook the priest's hand and he wished us a rather cold-blooded Merry Christmas. 
I wanted to pause for just a moment with this man, to engage, to, to ask a question. But I realized that my handshake was one of those swing you past me, just keep moving, please, mechanisms. We stepped out into the dark, the blinking fairy lights in the church porch, an illusion of cheerier sanctuary than had been our experience. But come on, let's break out a charitable attitude again. The stewards, well, they needed their reserved seats, and the seat traffic controller was probably trying to spare us embarrassment as unwitting chair squatters. And what about the priest? He was probably at the end of a dozen Christmassy services and was looking forward to a fireside sherry with his wife. But I can't help thinking what people who don't know God or church protocol would have made of it all. Would they have determined to never darken the old doors of that church again and more tragically have felt that they could never ever fit in with God either? But all was not lost. The village grocers and post office turned out to be a haven of delights, and not only because of its fresh crusty rolls and crisp newspapers that looked freshly ironed and starched. The owner was anything but stiff. He greeted us like old friends and chatted happily about village life. One morning, his shop was loaded with people, fussing around the heaving shelves and tiny aisles. I asked him about a coastal walk, and the whole store chimed in, a chorus of help, kindness, togetherness, not a hint of raised eyebrows or not more stupid tourists' attitude from them, just laughter, directions, and a jaunty chat. Again, togetherness. I closed the door behind me, a little ding of its attached bell, a vague connection to yesteryear. And needing to buy absolutely nothing at all, I suddenly wanted to go back inside again and rejoin the party. That grocer, who is also a postmaster, must be very busy. But I wonder, could he possibly take on running a pub and a church as well? Perhaps that way there'd be a greater culture of togetherness. See you next week. Lucas on Life.